morning, church family. Isn't it good to be in this season and to worship the Lord together and to be in God's Word? I would encourage you to grab a Bible if you don't have one. There's some provided in front of you. We're going to be in Isaiah 35 this morning. Isaiah 35, and I think that's found in your pew Bible on page 595, thereabouts. All right? So we have been in Isaiah. The last five weeks, we've been thinking about some themes in the book of Isaiah that get at the erosion of faith, the things that separate us from God and undercut our faith, our intimacy, and our health with God, and as a byproduct, that get at our ability to be able to have an impact on the world with this great good news that God has given us, the great gospel that he has loved us and has given himself for us, and we have the privilege of impacting the world with the gospel. But when we are separated from God, when our faith is eroded, that's impossible to have a great impact. So we've been talking about these themes that Isaiah speaks out to, to um, God's people. And now we're going to turn a page. We're going to think about some themes from the book of Isaiah of hope, which is fantastic, right? We love to think about hope. I was um, encouraged by a small group I'm a part of this week and being taught by them about hope. And um, as we were talking about it, one of the guys in the group was just making this observation that biblical hope is not like the hope of the culture that we live in. When people say hope and define hope that I hang out with in my culture, you probably hang out with in your culture, they're kind of thinking about wishful thinking. But biblical hope is very different. Biblical hope is rock-solid confidence, right? It's about rock-solid confidence for our future based in the nature and character and promises of the Lord who never fails, Think about that for a moment. It's different. The type of hope that we're talking about in this series is distinctly different than how most people think about it. I, I can count on this, on what God says and what's in my future, because I know he's always true. And I know his word is true. And I can have great confidence that God wins. Biblical hope says, I know that God has me. He's got me. Regardless of what I feel like or what's going on around me, he's got me every time, no matter what. This is hope that we proclaim. And our study on the themes of hope from Isaiah will help us focus specifically on the promises of the Messiah to be given. That Isaiah was writing of hundreds of years before Jesus Christ would come. He's speaking about this great word that God was bringing hope through the advent of Jesus Christ. Now, let me say this. There are so many other rich texts in the book of Isaiah, and that's why I would strongly encourage you to read it. If you haven't started reading it, you can still read it through the Advent season because a lot of those texts will point you to Jesus and will encourage you, inspire your own hope, and fire you up about it. And we're not going to have the opportunity to speak about one of the, my most favorite Isaiah passages, Isaiah 52 and 53, which, of course, paint this picture, the picture of communion. The price that Jesus paid so that I might be his, that, that he suffered. And Isaiah writes specifically about what Jesus would go through on the cross in those texts hundreds of years before so that we might know and have confidence, so God's people would have confidence in him and his great plan. Now, before we dive into the words of chapter 35, let me give you a few words about 
the context of it. So the words found in Isaiah 35, they're prophetic words that Isaiah is sounding, words that describe God's future for his people. And as such, I think it's important for us to understand the nature of biblical prophecy, what that looks like when it becomes reality. Often there are multiple layers of fulfillment to God's promises for our future. There's multiple layers when God speaks out his word in the prophetic word for us to understand. For example, there is the actual timely historical fulfillment of the word. When, when the prof- prophetic word is spoken out, I, and like Isaiah speaks about the recompense and justice that God was going to bring to the nations that were oppressing people. He specifically, he starts prophesying about uh, Edom and about Babylon specifically. Those prophecies were actual historical events that happened that occurred in the fulfillment of what Isaiah would promise and speak out. The predictions that Isaiah made, they came true in real life history. And because of that, we can have confidence in God's word, right? You can have assurance that God's word, when it is God's word, is reliable. And it will open up for us an understanding of what God is pointing to. But biblical prophecy often pointed to an even deeper fulfillment. It's a fulfillment found in Christ Jesus, the promised Messiah. So when Isaiah writes, and throughout his prophetic word, he writes about the Messiah. When we see him writing that way, we understand that he's pointing to something that's going to come in the future that is specifically Jesus. And you'll see a lot of these texts throughout the book of Isaiah. It points to God's larger plan of salvation. Last week, we talked about Isaiah chapter 40, and in Isaiah chapter 40, it had immediate consequences of the prophetic word, and it also pointed to Jesus. As noted by all the gospel writers when they were speaking and quoting from the book of Isaiah, pointing back to who Jesus was and who John the Baptist was, and reminds me of this wonderful text in Luke chapter 24, If you recall, uh, at the end of Jesus' life ministry, Jesus has died on the cross for us and just risen from the dead, but all his disciples didn't know what was going on yet. And um, Luke paints this picture of these disciples walking down this road, headed to this town called Emmaus. And Jesus joins them, but they don't recognize who it is. I don't know why. I'm not sure all the reasons or what exactly was going on, that he's walking on the road. And it says in the text that, Jesus started explaining the word to them, walking through all the prophetic texts in the Old Testament that pointed to him and that he was the fulfillment of. And as he's speaking, the text says their hearts all of a sudden got really warm. They're they're like, oh, their, their affection was wakened for what God was doing. They understood that God was true to his promises and in them was awakened this hope, this expectation that God was always true to his word. And wasn't it amazing, this, this crazy plan of God, this amazing plan of God through all the centuries that was come to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So there is that layer in biblical prophecy that points to fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And biblical prophecy often points also to what theologians call the eschatological. That is, the promises that will find their fulfillment into eternity that God actually opens the door for us to see what all of his human history is going to be like. And in doing so, profoundly affect us when we observe those things and hear those things that God is speaking out to us. It gives us assurance and confidence that God is in control. 
He's sovereign and he steers the course of human history. That layer of meaning is intended to give God's people perspective and hope and great confidence in his word, that he is true to his word. Who else can know the the sweep of human history but the Lord Almighty? No one else knows that. And all these layers of prophetic meaning are present in the words of Isaiah 35. Now, just a word about the immediate biblical context. These words of promise and hope and rejoicing we're about to read, they come as a counterpoint. A counterpoint to the words of Isaiah chapter 34 that Isaiah has just written about. And they were words of accountability and judgment for the enemies of God's people. Chapter 35 has these strong, harsh words about the destruction of the nations. And the words and the message of chapter 35 are distinctly different. Coming as they do immediately following chapter 34 makes them all the more striking. And they're filled, the words of chapter 35, with hope that shines out in an unmistakable way. What's so hopeful about them? Let's look at the text, starting in verse 1. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. And for those of you non-floral people in the crowd, that's this beautiful flower. It's in the iris family, where you get saffron from, actually. They're beautiful. So catch the imagery that he's painting. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. He's saying these specific spots that you think of as vacation spots that are beautiful. It's going to be given to the wilderness. You're going to discover great beauty there. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart. That describe you? Be strong. Fear not. Behold your God. Your God will come with vengeance and recompense from God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty grounds springs of water. In the haunts of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and the highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they're fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it, and they shall not be found there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. So Isaiah paints this dramatic picture, right, of a wilderness changing. The Israelites would have read these words, and they would have gotten the image in their mind. They knew what the wilderness was like. 
specifically this wilderness that was between where they had been in exile in Babylon and where they were going into Jerusalem. And the wilderness there, it's not like some of the desert landscapes you've seen. It's just rocks and sand. Very little vegetation. And there's predators there. It's a place filled with dangerous scavengers. And life was extremely difficult there. And when Isaiah paints it coming to life, it's this attention-getting image. And for more than just the obvious reason, because the wilderness is inextricably interwoven by the Old Testament writers with the spiritual history and the difficulty and discipline of God's people. The wilderness was a picture, is what Isaiah is using, in the Old Testament. When God's people disobeyed the Lord and they wandered away from him, they found themselves in a spiritual wilderness. Ever found yourself there? Lost and in danger and alone. And that detail that we see in this text in Isaiah, it's not incidental because it locates God's promise of a new day within the context of our lack, of our desolation, of our loneliness. And it locates God's promise within the complex history of Israel's oppression and redemption, failure and faith, hopelessness, and this overwhelming joy of a wilderness busting loose with life, springing forth with joy. There's an additional issue, I think, when we consider the issue of wilderness or that imagery that the Bible uses, especially those who have a sense in this season that you're going through difficulty and dryness in your life because God used used and he uses the wildernesses in our life to build character, to build spiritual depth. It matured for Israel their faith and dependence on God who had faithfully protected them and provided for them. And the wilderness experiences found in the Bible, they often produced profoundly rich fruitfulness in people. And that's the imagery here. We can be tempted to choose the easy and the comfortable, right? That's our pattern. But it's not where faith most often flourishes. Difficult circumstances deepen our faith in the Lord. And Jesus himself actually intentionally entered the wilderness. It can be a place of healthy spiritual wrestling, wrestling that builds our strength and our depth. And when Isaiah pictures this wilderness that blossoms abundantly and rejoices with joy and singing, his description represents more than geography, right? It's, it's a metaphor for spiritual renewal and vitality, for life springing up for a people who were brought into right relationship with God, who were once dry and away from him, and now blessed to enjoy that place immensely. And Isaiah depicts this place of earth's joyful response swelling into this echoing chorus and celebrating all the wilderness, the gift of life that they had. That new life declares, Isaiah says, the glory and majesty of God. It's this crocus blossoming and reflecting that God takes this place of wilderness and creates beauty among our barrenness. It's a wonderful image. Did you notice on the way to church today 
the hills. They're turning green. Isn't that great? Why is that? Yeah, it rained, right? And so all of a sudden it's coming to life, but there's something else going on. I'm here to tell you because Scripture tells us this. The hills are declaring the glory of God, how God is so faithful to us and comes and refreshes us. And those moments of refreshment are intended to create joy in us and to declare the glory and majesty of God. So when you look at the hills again, remember it this week. They declare the glory of God and the picture that Isaiah paints, the prophetic word here in Isaiah 35, points us to that great truth. Spiritual renewal and vitality is where God is headed with us. Isaiah extends his picture to include limping people who are given hope, broken people, people struggling in all kinds of ways. And what makes a difference for the people in verses 3 through 4 who were despairing and fearful and hopeless and weak? I think it was their awareness of God and his coming. All of a sudden, hope sprang up. Hope in him who was the spring rain in their wilderness. Isaiah is picturing this physical, emotional, and spiritual transformation of a people through the presence and the redemption of the Messiah, our Lord. Isaiah says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance, God's retribution. He will come and save you, verse 4, his latter half. And in fact, that's exactly what happened as Isaiah speaks out this prophetic word. God himself raised up Cyrus in Persia in history, who defeated Babylonia and established Persia as a dominant power. And in response, we read, if you remember um, the book of Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, that God moved through this transition of power to free his people, and Cyrus allowed the exiles to return to Jerusalem. But more than that is happening with these words. God was moving a rescue of the Spirit for those who were defeated and dry and in the wilderness. Now, here's where things get really interesting in the text, okay? Chapter 35, 5 through 6 says, When the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer. It's a great image, right? And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And Isaiah is uncovering for us the second layer of biblical prophecy here. That the New Testament portrays Jesus as the fulfillment of this prophecy of Isaiah 35. When John the Baptist seeks to understand if Jesus is the promised one, if he's actually the fulfillment of the Messiah's promise from the Old Testament, we find this in Luke 7, this recounting of what happened in that event where John's disciples are sent to discover if Jesus is the Messiah. Luke 7, starting verse 20 says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who's to come, or shall we look for another? Verse 21. In that hour, he, that is Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight. 
the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Isaiah 35 is coming true right before your eyes. The New Testament also gives us, just before this event, this list of healing stories. The beginning of Matthew 8, the healing of a leper. And right after that, in Matthew 8, of a centurion's son. And directly after that, of many people that were gathered in Peter's home. And right after that, the end of Matthew 8, of a broken, demon-possessed man. And in Matthew chapter 9, of a little girl and a woman. And later on in Matthew 9, of two blind men. And then of a man who was unable to speak at the end of Matthew 9. It's a series of demonstrations that Isaiah 35 was coming true in who Jesus was. And the words of Isaiah 35 were prophetic words that God had given hundreds of years before. Isaiah continues in verse 6 with that phrase, then the lame man will leap like a deer. You remember that incident in Luke chapter 5 where this man is taken to the presence of Jesus and lowered down. They dug a hole because they couldn't get to him in the ceiling of this house and lowered this man. And the man discovers not only physical healing, but a healing of his soul because he's forgiven. Because the Lord God turns to him and gives him his forgiveness. Jesus does. It's a picture of the fulfillment of this text. And in Acts chapter 3, it was that great incident where Peter heals this man who was lame from birth through the power of the words and the, the name of Jesus Christ. And the man gets up and he walks and he says he leaps. He jumps up and starts leaping and praising God. And in response to that, people are gathering around this guy and trying to discover what, what has God just done? This is so unusual and so crazy that he'd do something like this. And the crowd starts gathering and people, and Peter starts speaking out and preaching in the moment. And in that moment, we're told in the book of Acts, that thousands of people turn their life over to the Lord. They make a decision right then and there that he is the Messiah and they follow him because he's the God of hope. And he has saved them. And that's the beginning of the church, right? When all these people start embracing faith because the words of Isaiah 35 were coming true in the middle of Jesus and his work and the great movement of the Holy Spirit. The prophetic words that point back to Jesus. Isaiah continues the prophetic word from God. For the waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. It'll flourish. And the highway shall be there. And it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And in the middle of this awakening desert, this wilderness that's coming to life, is this altogether unique road. It's a highway, as depicted by Isaiah. Kind of a heavenly toll road, if you will. And all the travelers on this highway have two things in common. They have holiness, 
and they have redemption. They have been bought with a price. Their toll has been paid. They didn't pay the toll. God paid the toll for them to be able to on this road. Isaiah is clear about that. Now notice a few important aspects of the road that they're on. It's been given to the travelers as a gift. He paid the price for your entrance and your ongoing travels. That's the message of the good news, the gospel that we proclaim here every week. That God has paid the price for you to have life, this life that Isaiah 35 depicts. To be able to have forgiveness and intimacy with God and health with him. To know that you have been bought with a price and you have direction in your life, that you're on the highway. God has paid the price. And it's also, notice, where they belong. They belonged here. And it's where we belong. You and I, we were made for a holy life. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, it's so hard and difficult. And sometimes that runs counter to my desires. Actually, a lot of times that runs counter to my desires. And it's challenging for me. Yet God calls us to this place. And first and foremost, that's the most significant reason why to be holy, because God made you to be holy, and he calls you to be holy. But there's also a really practical reason I want you to hear about holiness that's significant. A friend of mine was sharing this with me this week. He was reading Randy Alcorn's, one of his latest books called The Purity Principle, where Randy Alcorn, who's really gifted at at making biblical truth understandable, he says this this in this book, purity is smart. Impurity is stupid. Don't you like that? That makes so much sense to me. Purity smart. Impurity is stupid. Consider something incredibly important with me. Holiness leads to all the best things you discover in life. It leads to all the best things in life. And unholiness leads to your destruction. God's word's really clear about that. Holiness protects you and sustains you and gives you life. And unholiness will eat you alive. I love also the fact that even idiots can find their way on this road. That's what the text said, right? That even fools, like straight out idiots who do the wrong things at the wrong time. Does that describe any of us here? Describes me. Even them. God is... Guys, have little bumpers on the road, like barriers. Where we're going to stay on this road. This is where God has us going. And we're going to hit those bumpers at times being stupid. But God is going to rescue idiots like me. And he's going to keep me on this highway that he's crafted, that he has made for his glory. Even we can do this in our spiritual journey. And the highway of holiness is also a place of safety notice. Reserved for the redeemed of the Lord. It says no lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast will be found there. It's indicative of the safety and security I find on the road journey God has me on. Now, this road doesn't say the road is going to be really easy and simple for you to do, or to travel. But it will be safe and secure because you're found in God himself and his presence will protect you on this road. It's a place of safety. And it's also a place for the redeemed. Now, that's kind of a Christianese phrase, right? Some of you know what it means. Some of you are like wrestling with it. So let me describe a bit of what Isaiah is communicating. 
and unpack it. The Hebrew word for redemption here has to do with being freed from the bondage that I am in by the payment of a price. Now, in the Old Testament law, in the Torah, there was descriptions about the payment of a price for people to get out of slavery and get out of indentured indebtedness. So if I had a family member who was indebted, I was obligated to help pay their price as a family member. And if they became so in debt that they gave their life into slavery, I had this obligation, according to Leviticus chapter 25, to pay that price for them, to get them out. It was an image in the Torah and the Old Testament law given for us to understand what God was going to do for each one of us, to pay a price. That's what we're celebrating here, communion, by the way. The price that he paid for my freedom, the forgiveness of my sin, for me to be on the way, the road, the highway of holiness, was his life. His broken body on a cross, his shed blood for me. That's how he redeemed me. He paid the price, and he did. He's already done that for me. And this is the place And only the redeemed get to travel on this highway. He paid this ransom for me. This idea of the Lord redeeming his people continues into the New Testament, and we see it in Mark chapter 10 and Luke 1 and Luke 21 with a strong emphasis on the person who paid the price for me, the redemption, and that is Christ himself. Romans 3.24 and Colossians 1.14 and 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 30 And this text from Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, which says, In him, that is in Jesus Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Because he shed his blood on the cross, I have been freed. Because he paid the price for my sin that led to death by his death that leads to life. I have been freed, forgiven of our trespasses, the things that we have done that violated the holiness of God. He is forgiven according to the riches of his grace. How much grace does he have? It's unfathomable, Scripture says, right? There's no limit to the love of God for you, even though you can be an idiot, that I can be an idiot. There's no limit to the grace of God, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom, in all wisdom and insight. And then Isaiah concludes this passage saying, And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. That's a great image, isn't it? And they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee. Now think about the imagery in Revelation if you know a bit about it. There will no longer be any tears in heaven. This is where we're Headed. And Isaiah 35 is painting this picture of the highway of holiness that will be a place of great joy. Just as the ransomed captives were returning from Babylon with joy, and even a deeper way, those who travel with Jesus have this characteristic about them. That's his profound gratitude and joy because of what God has done for them and where they're headed and what God is presently doing with us. And Isaiah 35 encourages us to think about that deeply, about where we're headed and why God's leading us there and the spirit of rejoicing that should be permeating us. Now, we're entering this Advent season, right, where we celebrate the birth of Christ. What actually leads people to faith in Jesus? 
I think it's when people see Jesus in you and me in our conversations and they see that actually we're a people of deep gratitude and thanksgiving and joy. That marks believers, by the way. It should be marking your life. It's part of the people who are on the highway to holiness. It's not people that are in drudgery and just have to do everything God makes them do. That's, that's not the picture here. It's people rejoicing on their way through this desert. Whatever wilderness experience that might come along, they are rejoicing in the goodness and provision of God. And one of my prayers for you this Advent season is that your joy would be contagious to your family and the people around you at work and school and that you would have this sense of the great work, the humbling work of God in you and delight in it. Take great joy and be greatly thankful and communicate why you have this great joy. Now, I know some of you came in a place where you are in the wilderness. Things are dry. You feel a long ways away from God. And this great word is calling you to a place to experience God's freedom, his redemption, that he paid the price. And all you have to do is receive that, is to say, God, I need that forgiveness. I need you. I need a relationship with you. And God, in his grace that's unfathomable, will say, it's about time. I would love to welcome you into the family. I would love to forgive you and give you grace and help you on this road. Pay your price to be on this road where you've always been tended to be with the rest of us who are traveling that road, who have this great privilege of following him. If you would like to take that step with the Lord, I'd love to just lead you in prayer right now. And for those of you who are believers, just be praying for people who are in this place right now as we lead them this way. And consider how good it is that God has redeemed you and placed you on this road. And he's always had this plan for all these centuries for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray for my friends here, my dear friends, Lord, for those that might have come and um, just feel a long ways from you because they've never turned to you. I pray you'd give them the courage right now just to speak it out, to, to ask your forgiveness and tell them, tell you directly, they want to follow you. That they would have confidence, not just a wish, but confidence in you that breathes life into them and makes them your children. To speak those words out to the Lord, to seek his forgiveness. Thank him for the redemption that's found in Jesus Christ. Embrace that and receive it from him. And for those of you that are on the road right now, we'll just take a moment just to thank him. Oh, Lord. Thanks. Help me have that same spirit that's pictured here in Isaiah 35 of exuberant gratitude, thankfulness in you. We pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has been promised and who has come 
and who is coming again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.